Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us from Cape Town is Professor Suki Goodman, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Commerce at the University of Cape Town. She's also currently the program leader for the Future of Work Research Program under the South African Research Chair, Creation of Decent Work and Sustainable Livelihood. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Prof Goodman, in your career, you have progressively risen through the ranks at the University of Cape Town for almost three decades. I think we're around about year 2028, 20, 27. You started heading, from a leadership point of view, heading the section of organizational psychology from 2010 through to 2017, then served as head of department for the School of Management Studies from 2018 up until being appointed Dean of the Faculty of Commerce. Please, would you walk us through a few of the milestones in your journey to date? Hmm. Um, so yeah, I've dedicated my entire um, working life to UCT, and fortunately for you, for me, UCT offered me a, these wonderful opportunities. So I think fundamentally attaining my first and second degree were a critical milestone in giving me a sense and flavour of what it meant to be an academic. Um, I had come into a university thinking I'm going to study to be an organisational psychologist. I was interested in working with um, healthy people in the world of work and trying to structure work in such a way that it maximised their human potential, but fell into kind of um, academic roles as tutors and teaching assistants, and then there was an opening and quite quickly in that, I think I realized that this was the right kind of context and environment for me. Um, and in terms of the leadership, I'd held leadership um, roles um, throughout school and kind of without thinking too hard about it, must have had a, a natural inclination towards it. And when the head of um, the section of organizational psychology was stepping away from that role, there seemed like quite an organic um, um, transition um, and my colleagues in the space, many of them much more senior academics than I was at the time, were very happy with me stepping into it. What was critical for me was to ensure that I registered as a professional industrial organizational psychologist with the HPCSA, so that was a critical milestone in order to teach in the discipline I needed and the qualification and then of course to be an academic the next critical piece is the doctorate and fortunately for me um, my supervisor had said to me a few years um, before 2008 that she could hear the pitter patter of little feet so we must get going with the PhD and I handed in the PhD in July and my first child was born in September but really the PhD was my ticket to ride. Um, Cheryl Deloray, who is now at a different university, was the vice chancellor of research at the time, had said to me that it is a, um, it's not your life's work, it's a ticket to ride, um, and she was absolutely correct. And that gave me the gravitas to then kind of put my hand up for other positions that facilitated um, future promotions and really was the very beginning of the journey. And I don't think I'd be sitting in this seat um, if that piece of this particular puzzle hadn't been accomplished and, and of course, then the, the, the progression to full professor, um, which was the other major achievement and actually a one that I never, ever thought I'd get to. When I got to associate professor, I thought to myself, that's totally good enough, but very, very happy to have been able to reach full professor. 
your steps have definitely been about progression, getting to one level, then moving on to the next. And I think that what you say about the ticket to the game, that if you didn't have those foundational points in place, you wouldn't be sitting in the chair that you're in now. So now that you're in the hot seat, what is your vision for the faculty? Um, It's a hot seat. It's a great seat. Um, It's in a really... An incredible uh, privilege to be the Dean of the Faculty of Commerce. And I think really the vision must be about contributing to achieving UCT's vision 2030 in as many of the strategic priority areas as possible and underpinning our efforts with transformation and care as the foundational strats. I'll never forget the first time I listened to Mamakheti Pakeng describe the dynamic interplay between excellence, transformation, and sustainability as a pathway for a future UCT. And it's that vision that drives the way I think about what we will make, what will make a power faculty. It's really kind of the, um, my, um, my southern star that keeps me focused. That is a wonderful vision. And I, I really appreciate that dynamic of transformation and care. They're not often words that would be associated with a strategy, but we've seen in the rankings and the results of the university that um, those have really been pivotal in in terms of delivering on the vision and success. Given your strategic priorities, what would you say are some of your greatest challenges? Mm. So I think about this a lot. I think my blind spots related to my privilege. The deepest challenge for us is understanding how deep structural historical inequalities have impacted on who we are and what and how we do things, how we think about things. And I think keeping this front of mind as we navigate the higher education landscape in South Africa at this time is a critical component of achieving this vision. And moving on to a more positive note, what's the best part of the job? Yeah, there's there's so many positive aspects to the work that I do. And I think, I mean, you know, at the top of this incredible list is working with um, staff and students, um, uh, you know, striving to create a working environment that is life affirming rather than diminishing or draining um, so that staff and colleagues who come to work who bust their gut on a daily basis in pursuit are fulfilling this dream of higher education, do so in an environment that, that is um, conducive. So I think that's really rewarding working with that. And then really kind of, you know, in relation to our students, I mean, working and participating in their sacred journey, making some contribution to the texture of their lives, opening up opportunities through education. I mean, what could be more rewarding than spending one's life in work doing that? Touching lives, having an impact, it's so incredibly important and and given that aspect of of a nurturing dynamic. Over the course of the show, we've interviewed hundreds of women across different sectors who occupy leadership roles, and all of them have been trailblazers. But women continue to be underrepresented in corporate leadership positions. In 2021, there was a PwC report based on South African businesses, and it indicated that only 13% of executives occupying roles of CEOs and CFOs were women. As a female leader, how do you think we can increase the throughput of more women into leadership roles? 
Yeah, this is such a vexing but also interesting dilemma. So, I mean, there are many answers to this question, but I think what I'm most interested in as an industrial psychologist is really thinking about how we structure work in ways that make leadership and manageable management accessible to women, women who still retain traditional family roles or who are primary caregivers, um, who hold kind of um, other kinds of responsibilities. So really reimagining how we understand leadership, how we understand what it means to show up, how, what working hard looks like in the confines of what a day looks like, um, that in, in a way that really accounts for the multiple roles we play throughout the spectrum of our daily lives. And I think until we get our head around how work has been constructed and how it has been constructed or served a particular kind of masculine demographic with the assumption that there's a wife at home on some level, uh, or, or at least an infrastructure that supports kind of the rest of the world in which we live, we're not going to necessarily get it right. Um, so I think there's an opportunity really to really think about the narrative and small things around kind of being available at all time. Now, is that actually okay and appropriate? And if it is, I think we're going to battle to encourage more women to put their hand up for these roles because the sacrifice, I think, is actually in many cases, well, not even the sacrifice, I just don't think the options exist for, for, for all women in all cases, given the multitude of responsibilities and roles that we play. And I mean, I, I believe that men play multiple roles too. So I think shifting how we understand, how we structure work would be good for everyone, not just um, women who are also mothers and caregivers, but also for fathers um, that are also caregivers. One of the thoughts that I've had on this, apart from potentially women maybe being resistant to accepting roles of leadership because of the multitude of responsibilities that they have to handle and, and deal with. But for me, it's also about opening the opportunity to women because there are a tremendous number of women who are extraordinarily capable, but they just don't seem to have access to that opportunity. So I often think that maybe this is also where we need to look at mechanisms that open those doors. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think, I mean, I'm surrounded by women in leadership roles, which I think says something quite profound about the organization that I work for. Um, I suppose I'm also surrounded by the most fantastic men in leadership roles, but I think we all have a responsibility to recognize and nurture women leaders. Um, and I think that women leaders experience vast and actually quite differentiated challenges associated with many factors, but chiefly issues of race and, race and ethnicity um, and how women are perceived in spaces are influenced by those factors. So my experience as a white woman leader in this context, I think is vastly different from some of my black colleagues who are also holding positions of seniority and having to navigate um, certain you know, considerations that are particular. Um, but I really do think that in, order, in, in increasing the throughput of women in leadership roles will require better understanding of the systemic and structural biases that remain inherent in many of the current systems of power and dominance. And I mean, I don't mean to speak kind of in theory. I don't mean that theoretically. I, I mean that in practice, in terms of the daily lived realities 
of managing um, in spaces because power and dominance and who owns the narrative really defines you know what those opportunities look like how they are crafted um, I do think in our institution there are incredible opportunities um, for women and I think the culture has shifted and I think it's testament to that when you see the number of women deans or heads of departments and the the women in our executive, I mean, our executive for the last few years has been led by women and, and to be able to see something allows us to imagine ourselves in that. And I think there's something very profound about that. And that point dovetails to the next question that I wanted to ask you is how do you think that women occupying these roles of leadership and given that, as you've said, the executive of UCT, so many female deans within the institution, how that influences, let's say, younger women or even students to consider non-typical positions as viable career options. I can't overemphasize the power of role modeling in order to overcome stereotypes and role modeling in such a way that there's no one size fits all. So I think what you want to see is multiple women doing it differently and from multiple contexts, multiple ethnicities, so that there is kind of an image or a role model out there for everyone. Um, yeah, and, 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 and also being accessible. So being accessible to actually engage around what it feels like and what it took to get there and maybe also demystifying it. Um, so, I mean, I haven't really personally being conscious of barriers associated with being a woman in the space, but I think I've been lucky in that way. Um, and I think the other reality of women in leadership spaces is really overcoming kind of strange stereotypes that if women kind of are assertive um, or forthright, they kind of it elicits a particular kind of response. It might be quite different that if, men, that, that if a male leader is assertive and forthright. Um, and those are, uh, I mean, those are interesting challenges to be navigating. I remember, I think it was a, a Sheryl Sandberg quote, and it was this vision of the boss being the man and being able to assert his authority. And when a woman was behaving the same way, she was perceived as bossy. So <laughs> we've got these these contrasts to to contend with on on behaviors and the response that you want to elicit from your target audience. Last point that I wanted to ask you from a leadership point of view is about some of the strategies that you've found to be most effective on a practical level. Yeah, so I mean, up there at the top is around listening hard and really reflecting on what I think I'm hearing understanding what it really means to be heard and seen and applying that consistently in all the spaces that I find myself. Collaborating, engaging in partnerships, um, being authentic, having authentic engagements um, is a critical strategy um, and one that is also high risk demonstrating vulnerability, being comfortable with not being right, um, and recognizing my blind spots have been fundamental levers for me to lead in a way that feels congruent and palatable um, for myself, and hopefully works for the people that I work with. It 
sounds as though there's been a lot of um, introspection on your side and getting to know what works for you and understanding how you fit in to almost drive the levers of the organization forward to achieve the, the strategy through its people. Yeah, so, I mean, I've had two fantastic experiences with coaching. And, um, I mean, I've had other kinds of interventions, but I think coaching interventions, which the university has made available, um, has been a critical um, space to really explore that introspection and that reflexivity and finding that, I almost feel like that mystical kind of heartbeat moment between kind of reacting and responding and really trying to master that. Um, So, I mean, I haven't mastered it yet, but certainly kind of stepping into a path where I see that as a critical leadership strategy um, has been very, very helpful especially in in a complex environment like the one that we find ourselves in. Um, In all institutions of higher education at the moment, there's incredible amounts of complexity and challenges, and really being able to pause um, has been um, a fundamental skill. Thanks for sharing. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to Professor Suki Goodman, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Commerce at the University of Cape Town. We'd love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof Goodman, when we were talking earlier about some of your milestones, you mentioned that attaining your first degree, your second degree, and getting your PhD were fundamental to you excelling in your position. In fact, attaining the role that you have. And frequently we've found from all of the guests on our show that education has been a prerequisite to take them ahead. Could you please share some of your views about education as an equalizer and an enabler for women? Yeah, so I think there's no question that both formal but also informal education has been an enabler. So the experience of, you know, learning from kind of books or kind of the giants that's, that have come before us in terms of empirical research, understanding the landscape, understand building competence and skills in a formal educational context has been critical. And it's also boosted my confidence. I, I mean, I, I never believed that I would actually get a PhD. I was terrified of writing. It was an incredibly painful and challenging experience. So actually, Getting the PhD was an enormously affirming uh, moment that then allowed me to build foundations on that. Uh, I can actually do this thing. I can learn to ride a bike at 45. I can do anything. I can conquer the world. But the informal aspects of my education have been equally valuable. Networking with classmates, um, being able to participate in kind of informal educational training opportunities by doing have been um, equally um, fortifying. I come from a so-called feminized profession that has shifted from being heavily male dominated to now dominated by women. And in that, the nature of the field also changed. And so kind of being involved in a discipline like my organizational psychology, which is a professional registration with the Health Professions Council of South Africa that requires us to do an internship So going out into the field and really taking that theory and applying it and seeing what works and what doesn't and having enough critical thinking ability or agility to shift 
when the theory hits up against a practice that doesn't work has been as fundamental as the piece of paper. But if I can also just say that I do believe that as the world progresses in the way that it does, is that education is not everything. So there are some people that can master and learn technology or technological spaces that doesn't necessarily require um, a formal education in it. I think there are greater opportunities to attain great heights um, and not everybody needs a university education. There are fantastic colleges, our um, universities of technology do amazing work and other spaces where you can attain skills and competencies that are needed. Um, and um, that's why I, I feel like both formal and informal education counts. And what many of our students lack is the opportunity to get informal exposure into the world of work. And it's an enormous disadvantage. Um, so if you've got a, some sense of what it means to be working in kind of a white color or blue color environment, certainly helps, I think, when you are trying to understand kind of the, the, the knowledge um, that and the competencies and skills that everyone's trying to educate towards. And I think that is a, a real area of need, actually facilitating mm -hmm. exposure on the ground experience to give context to why are we becoming an accountant or an actuary or a marketing professional. And on that note, how do you think there can be better collaboration between industry and academia so that you get the right type of fusion in place? Yeah, so, I mean, in my faculty, many of our qualifications are um, overseen by professional accrediting bodies. And so SICA, for example, or ESSA, or the, the psychology, the Board of Psychology are deeply involved because our programs have to speak to um, professional body needs and those professional bodies are impacted by industry. So I, I think um, at UCT, we've got a fantastic careers um, service and there's a very, very tight relationship with a vast array of industry and governmental partners that help inform um, who we are and what we think about, but also kind of feed into what our qualifications need to look like in order to produce graduates who can do what industry wants us to do. So we see industry as a critical stakeholder. And at the moment, for example, we're going through a massive curriculum review process. And part of that process is engaging with industry stakeholders to really understand the world of work that we're educating for. So, I mean, I can't overemphasize the importance of that stakeholder in everything that we do. And with the university, you know, as you were almost relaying some of your experiences as a student, and I can concur with those with my experiences, is that it's not just about the qualification that you attain at the end of the day, that you've got the dynamic of engaging with colleagues, peers, uh, building out networks, because the reality is that the people who are studying today are the continent's future socio-political economic players. So how do you think the responsibilities of universities are towards shaping that thinking of students and in particular for women? Yeah, so as a public institution, I think we carry a massive responsibility to contribute active, conscientized, analytical, skilled citizens into the economy and society. And when you speak about women, 
I think our responsibility to ensure that we empower and embolden women to step into those spaces is as fundamental. I think we've got a massive responsibility to engage in socially responsive and responsible research that doesn't just sit on the shelves of libraries untouched and unseen, but is used in practical and applied ways. I think we need to be developing thought leaders, problem solvers, truth seekers, knowledge producers. I think we need to be producing knowledge workers, but we also need to be producing artists and dreamers and philosophers and brain surgeons and astrophysicists and climate warriors. I mean, universities are traditionally sites of contestation, and I think we should remain as incubators of disruption to the status quo. That is our responsibility. And hopefully some of those disruptors will walk into their worlds of work and organizations and, you know, be the designers of new technologies that will contribute to saving our planet, improving our economy. I mean, that's what I, I mean, that's really what we're here for. That's such an awesome expression, incubators of disruptors. Mm. The world of work has been a common point in our dialogue so far, and you are the program leader for the Future Work Research Program, which falls under the umbrella of the Saatchi Research Chair, Creation of Decent Work and Sustainable Livelihood. Please, can you tell us more about the aims of the program and, importantly, some of its achievements? I'm so pleased that you've asked me about that. So the Saatchi Chair is the brain and heart child of my colleague, Professor Ines Mayer, she has contributed to the transformation of the discipline of organizational psychology in South Africa through her research in helping us reasonably understand what is decent work and inclusive prosperity. That is the domain of economists traditionally. So from a real kind of econometric perspective on what is a kind of sustainable livelihood, decent work. And so she's brought a different lens into the space, really focusing an organizational psychology lens that focuses the individual and understanding from them what contributes to a decent life, what is enough money to sustain a decent livelihood. So the Future of Work Research Program is really focused on understanding the features of the working environment and the nature of leadership that define um, decent work. Um, because if we're saying that that is a priority, of course, the nature of organizations will need to shift and change with it. Um, and there's been incredible work that's been done on in this area. Last year, um, there was a conference that we co-hosted with Kurt April from the GSB, really positioning decent work um, as the fulcrum on which a good society and economic development um, should be projecting from. It's such important work that you're doing and it's gonna have significant implications as we move ahead, even today. You're also a member of several organizations, registered organizational psychologist with the Health Professionals Council of South Africa, member of both the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology and the South African Society for Monitoring and Evaluation. Can you tell us a little about your involvement in these structures and why it's important to keep up with these memberships? Mm, so it's been really important for me to keep up with my um, professional registration. I worked hard to get it um, and it defined me as a so-called 
um, professional. Um, but my work in um, as a registered organizational psychologist at the moment really has been focusing on being able to supervise interns. So the next generation of industrial organizational psychologists who leave our master's programs and go into internship sites require supervision and one must retain one's registration in order to do that. Um, I also believe in my heart of heart of, on the work of um, industrial psychology and the impact it can have in business and the world of work and enhancing people's working lives. Um, I think it is a profession for the good, I like to call it. And so that is the crossover into my affiliation with SIOPSA. Um, and so SIOPSA is really trying to transform the profession. There's been a real um, emphasis on um, demographic transformation, but most importantly, supporting um, this emergent cohort of black industrial psychologists um, who might not have some of the um, economic capital that our um, white students come into the profession with. They might lack um, access to certain networks. And one of the fabulous interventions that is being launched in 2023 is a really well-organized uh, mentoring program that I hope they'll choose me to mentor, to be one of the mentors, to really identify what are the critical kind of touch points that interns need to develop the skills and competencies they require to make them marketable and to have a flourishing career. Um, monitoring and evaluation is where I focus my PhD um, and um, the, the work of program evaluation has been a real kind of late, I've come to it late, but it really focuses on understanding the efficacy and the effectiveness of the interventions that we introduce in our various spaces. So if you're going to run a mentoring program, how do you know it's going to yield results? How do we get return on investment? Um, and I'm really interested in kind of in our current economic context where resources are limited. How do we ensure that the interventions we choose to implement will yield the most significant results, the, be the best bang for our buck, given that we have very little resources to play with? You sound like someone who's very hands-on and in terms of the studying component that you've done, that you also imbue that into the world of work. Given our program is a gender-based program, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is about some of the challenges that you may have experienced being a woman as you were building out your career and how you overcame those issues. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't like to think of this as a challenge or an obstacle, but I think working hard to be a present parent while being deeply invested in my work continually pre presents me with difficult choices. Um, and the greatest obstacle has been, I think, not feeling good enough or feeling like an imposter. So being able to feel and be a good mother, I think for me is my most celebrated achievement and raising healthy, emotionally robust, kind, conscious human beings actually is my real life's work. And then being able to do that while holding a leadership role that I take immensely seriously, um, I think is no mean feat. And really it's that balance, it's that dance um, that constantly occupies um, my headspace and remaining present in both spaces and being able to switch roles at a lightning speed. 
Um, and learning how to do that, I think, has allowed me to traverse some of these challenges. Um, yeah, in a way that nobody feels like they're not getting enough um, or be, feels shortchanged. It's a tough balancing act to to achieve. How are your support structures? Yeah, so I was actually must say, I mean, I can't talk about that without acknowledging kind of my um, incredible support structures, both in work and at home. So my partner um, is also an academic um, and so fortunately has some of the flexibility that that comes with it, but also is an incredibly hard working individual. But um, I think part of it, and this is, I think it, it relates to kind of being a woman in a leadership position, is having a partner that kind of respects that and appreciates it and is willing to kind of share in certain kinds of responsibility to acknowledge that both our work is important to both of us equally um, and recognizes that um, our family requires both of us to be invested equally. And I think that is being a critical um, component of my journey, being able to, well, having chosen or being fortunate enough to having found a partner that understands things the way that I do. And really, he's not interested in kind of leadership and management, um, but is able to kind of yeah, work with me. Um, and I think that power dynamic is really one that I hope certainly my daughter is able to find in a relationship that she t has in the future, a partnership. Is there anything that if you had the chance to do again, you would do differently? Yeah, I would have been less afraid of maths and I certainly would have learned Isikosa. Um, and I feel like at 50 years old, it's become harder and harder and harder to do both of those things. But I recognize them as um, I would have done that slightly differently. Um, I think in the Faculty of Commerce, maths is, in our in our programs and in our degrees, maths is kind of a kind of an underpinning of so much of what we do. And what I see so often is just how fear of maths, as opposed to inherent ability, really holds people back from succeeding in it and there's also deeply gendered they come from this weird kind of historical feeling like you know the boys were good at maths and girls that weren't which is rubbish um, but I think it does fit into these crazy stereotypes and I, and I, I think I mean, not everybody needs to be mathematical of course there are a whole host of other beautiful things that you can do but if you choosing a profession in my discipline and our faculty um, that is definitely um, an area that I might have done differently. I would have learned to love it rather than fear it. And looking towards the future for women, what do you think we need to do to build a more egalitarian society where there are no limits imposed on women? Mm, yeah, so, I mean, I certainly think that what we need to do is to foster in young girls from the very start to be kind to themselves. I mean, to be kind, we, we inherently taught, or in taught inherently to be kind to others and to nurture, but actually what we really need to be talking about is how to be kind to yourself, how to look after yourself, how to listen to yourself, how to center yourself without it feeling wrong or uncomfortable. I think we really have to build in kind of being generous and forgiving of ourselves and actually fundamentally to being able to surround ourselves with people that are worthy of us 
You know, when I listen to you sometimes, and I think this is, again, when we were talking about sort of engendered behavior of boys can do maths, girls can't, is that we would almost take this view as being a bit egocentric. But the reality is if we don't look after ourselves, we can't look after anyone else. Totally. Absolutely. And I think that's also, I mean, to be honest with you, I think the greatest lesson in all of this has been the art of self-reflection and the generative power of being able to own mistakes to inform different ways of doing and being without taking mistakes on as kind of failures. I mean, really appreciating that to succeed, you must fail or to learn, you need to make mistakes. And that that is part of what builds like a robust, resilient, functional human being. Um, and really to work with kind of that as a, yeah, in an empowered way, using it as a superpower, actually. I think it is actually a superpower. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> One question that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success. So if you could share, what do you think have been some of your drivers? Yeah, so in some ways, I think for me, recognizing as a young child that something was deeply wrong with the society in which we lived was kind of one of the most defining moments of growing up and certainly was instrumental in shaping who I am and has being a critical driver in kind of thinking about who I want to be and what I want to dedicate my life's work to be um, and thinking about living with purpose. So certainly just kind of living in South Africa, growing up in the 80s and the 90s um, and kind of trying to understand kind of the craziness, um, the devastation, the, 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 the human rights, and, and the complexity that this has wrought on our society has really been the defining, I suppose, defining variable of who I want to be. So you've shared moments from the 80s and, and 90s, and really it was a, a crazy time. Um, I can't even think of trying to apply some form of logic of, of what the country lived through and came out at, at the end. Who have been some of your strong female role models in your life? So, I mean, certainly my mother, um, who is the hardest working, who was the hardest working person I'd ever met, but also kind of taught me some fantastic life lessons. Um, and um, her attitude was don't have children until you're in your 30s, which wasn't kind of the regular refrain of mothers of that generation, but such an empowering lesson. She also told me not to wear makeup until I needed to, <laughs> which is another, um, but really a strident, independent um, human being. Um, so um, who was also open to multiple ways of being and thinking and doing, has a great openness. Um, certainly in my time at UCT, I have been spoilt with incredible, iconic um, women and role models and watching how Mama, uh, Professor Mamacheti Poking navigated the post fees must fall moment at the University of Cape Town, how she galvanized a community um, was inspiring. Um, my PhD supervisor, Professor Jolo Potikita, was another incredible role model um, and really, I think, helped me grow up 
um, into grow up in academia and forgiving in terms of her critique. But I, once I went, went through her hands, I could almost sustain any kind of critique in the most gracious and open way. But also, I mean, I'm, I'm the women colleagues and my female friends I'm currently surrounded by, I mean, they inspire me on a daily basis. I'm learning all the time. And um, so I think I'm incredibly fortunate to be in a community of amazing women from incredibly diverse backgrounds, doing a whole lot of different things from stay-at-home moms um, to kind of professors in computational sciences. Um, and each one of them um, teaches me. So what would you say has been the greatest lesson, if you could pick one? Yeah, so I think the greatest lesson must be must be the self-reflection piece. Yeah, I, I think that that is being able to really listen to the internal voice um, and link to that, actually navigating navigating failure um, and using failure as an opportunity to learn um, and really having faith in my capacity to learn um, so that I'm not atrophying at 50, but rather recognizing actually that um, there's just every day opportunities to expand and grow and develop and improve. And lastly, as we close out our conversation today, please use this platform to share some words of inspiration or, or motivation for women on the continent that are listening to us. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I don't want to say anything that sounds trite, um, but I think to go back to kind of building one's self-belief um, is a fundamental lever in ultimate success, really learning to learn oneself um, and listen to what it is that you want for you as opposed to what other people want or believe for you. Um, and then definitely the, the critical piece around surrounding yourself with people who are worthy of you. For me, that is um, lesson 101. It's a really important piece, but it's often something that is hard for, for people to learn. And also to, to, make, to be, be in the driver's seat, to make choices around that. Um, that impact on your life as opposed to a passenger life happens and it happens really quickly. Um, and so being able to find places that you can control where it goes and how it goes to the best of your ability in the context that you find yourself with the resources at your disposal um, to really, to yeah, to try control the narrative as opposed to having the narrative controlled for you. I love that message, be in the driving seat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to Professor Suki Goodman, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Commerce at the University of Cape Town.